Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and with me today, as always, the General of the Allied Forces. Yay, my name's Ed, my pronouns are they and them, I'm running my air conditioner in the background again today. Well, General Ed, what's our topic today? Uh, we're going to talk about the biggest uh, swinging of imperial dicks in the history of imperialism and human warfare in general. Pan- the Panama Canal. Uh, maybe I don't know, but mu- I don't know much about the Panama Canal during World War Two. But we're talking about World War Two. I'm sitting here with my World War Two coffee cup, ready to get my armchair general on. Nice. I I do know the Japanese had a plan to bomb the Panama Canal during World War II. I don't think they ever followed through with it. I wouldn't be surprised if that was their plan. Yeah, uh, that's about all I know about what it what happened there in World War II. But if you talk about imperialism and dick swinging, it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big one of those. Yep. In any it's case, got a big stick. Before we talk about World War II board games, World War II games. We have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. I'll go first. Uh, Mine was pretty straightforward. I got to hang out and play some board games. I played Red Dragon Inn, played Lost City, played uh, Onitama, which we'll talk about a bit in detail later, played Azul, and played Terraforming Mars. That's a future episode entirely right there. Um, and also in my D&D games, only had one this week, the party had last ventured into a rift to the astral plane to rescue some lost sailors from an airship. They had found the sailors, but then, you know, they had to, uh, generate the portal on their end so that they could get back out while being attacked by a juvenile astral kraken. Yeah, uh, it grabbed a lot of people with tentacles, it punched a lot of people, it flung a lot of people around, um, they eventually killed it, because it was just a juvenile, just a baby, but, um, yeah, they did that, they escaped, they revealed certain secrets about themselves to a professor, and that professor turned out to be a silver dragon, which should have been obvious from his name. Uh, I can't think of any silver puns. Something about being tarnished, perhaps? Need some polishing? Yeah, I got nothing. Uh, yeah, it should have been obvious from his name, because his name literally was Silver something. Uh, and now they're headed to a different kingdom to follow up on some information given to them by the dragon that will lead to them going into a dungeon crawl for a while, which will be fun for me. Crawling through them dungeons. Ed, how about you? What was your weekend hobby like? Uh, it's about the same as it's been for the last couple weeks. I got my last two units of Lannister infantry all finished up. So that just leaves some cavalry and a couple of the non-combat characters to finish up. And that will be my starter set Lannister army. Game of Thrones, it's a fairly small scale army game 
40 points is your maximum for like a standard game. So that's about five units with some extra characters thrown in there. So that'll be nice to be finished up. Not quite sure what I'm going to work on next. I'm still trying to get my 3D printer to cooperate because I'm determined to just not start priming any of my Stargrave stuff until the whole thing is finished and printed. So who knows when that's going to happen. And played some Blood Bowl. Still have no idea what I'm doing. Right now it's Dark Elves versus Skaven. And the Skaven ended up hiring Greenskin and Troll Mercenaries. So in addition to their little dudes who like to run around and cause mischief, they also have some heavy hitters, which is going to be frustrating. So yeah, squishy elves versus squishy rats. Blood Bowl. Yep. So that was about it. I can't really think of much else that I've done. Yeah. A Go game that hasn't gone anywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know why I'm taking so long to make moves. Such is the way of things. Yep. Hooray. Hooray. So on to the main topic. World War II games. Yay. Uh, there is a surprisingly little amount actually written about looking at World War II through the history of board games. Maybe I just didn't look hard enough, but it didn't seem like there's a whole lot of people who were interested in writing about that topic. So I don't have like any kind of central thesis, just kind of a general overview of what does this war look like in board games? Woo! So the earliest that you get World War II board games starting to show up outside of the actual war itself. There are a couple of, like, propaganda games that I found from Nazi Germany that were about, like, bombing England and stuff like that. Once you get into the late 60s and early to mid-70s is when things start to kind of take off. Um, but the first one that I found came out in, like, 1961. And then a majority of them start in, like... 73 to 77 is kind of when everything starts popping off. My own uninformed theories as to why this happened is probably because the 1970s gives enough temporal space that you have, you know, perhaps veterans who are willing to talk more about their experiences, um, governments starting to declassify and release documents related to what happened during the war, um, You'll have more academics starting to look at World War II and see what happened. I would also suspect that a part of it may have been media-driven. By the 1970s, you were starting to see a lot more films and TV shows that treated World War II a little lighter. Uh, that's the era of, like, Hogan's Heroes and such. Anyway, yeah, so you've got that just kind of more media exposure in general. Um, and so you start to get companies like Avalon Hill and simulations publications who start producing World War II board games. And these are like the really old school hex encounter, stupidly detailed type games. So you've got like Advanced Squad Leader, Anzio, 
longest day. Um, a lot of these are very like ground level type simulations that often cover specific battles rather than the whole war itself. A lot of them are just self-contained products um, compared to something like Advanced Squad Leader where they have a system and then a bunch of scenarios they play within that system. A lot of the games are, you know, one and done. This is how we designed the game. This is the battle that it covers. You know, that's your lot. Um, you also start to get some kind of some solo games that show up. Uh, the most prominent one was B-17 Queen of the Skies, where you're playing a B-17 flying over Germany. Doing all that fun stuff, fun and gigantic air quotes. Uh, outside of those little tactical simulations, you also get more grand strategy games that uh, cover larger campaigns, either entire campaigns themselves or um, the war in its entirety. So you get games like Origins of World War II, which is kind of a weird hybrid of like what would become Axis and Allies and Diplomacy. So you have the various powers kind of like doing that social strategizing with each other, but then there's also the tactical or I guess strategic board game element. Uh, Highway to the Reich, which is another grand strategy game, and then World in Flames is the the big one that everybody always talks about, but nobody actually ever plays. And then, of course, there's my my old favorite campaign for North Africa. Hooray. <laughs> Someday I'll find a copy of it that's not $500, because I don't want to spend $500 on a board game that nobody will ever play with me. So, <clears throat> outside... Sorry, go ahead. Yep. So once you uh, get those old school war games, things kind of chug along. There are so many World War II games that I could play multiple games per day for the rest of my life and probably never play all of them still. Uh, and then in the 80s, you get the big one that everybody knows about, and that's Axis and Allies. Uh, Axis and Allies was originally published in 1981 by Avalon Hill. Uh, it's another grand strategic style game. Uh, but the big difference is that this game is much simpler compared to something like World in Flames. Uh, it takes place on one kind of average sized board from the time. It doesn't take a gigantic table with maps and counters and all that. doesn't have a rule book that you can beat a goat to death with. And that was a big part of its popularity is that the game is just really super simple. You can teach new players how to play it in an afternoon. You can play it in like two to four hours, potentially. And, you know, that's it. Um, adds some more abstraction and I guess gameism into it since it's not necessarily like super strategically or tactically detailed. And then you get uh, lots of spinoffs for that that usually cover specific campaigns. Um, they did a anniversary edition in, in 2004, which was a light retooling of the original uh, of the original Axis and Allies, 
And then ever since then, they haven't really published one big grand strategy game since. They're usually limited to a theater, so you'll have Europe, and it'll be like Europe 1940 or Europe 1942. Um, there's Axis and Allies Pacific. Yeah, I've noticed that they haven't published the like full one again, and that's annoyed me because I want to buy the full one, but I can't. Yeah, I'm in this. I'm in the same boat. Um, the individual campaign ones are supposed to be interesting on their own. They because they're smaller in scale, they do add in some more strategic depth um, that the grand strategy game doesn't have. Just because you know, if you're only doing Guadalcanal you're going to want some more information about the Marines and the Japanese infantry that are on the Island, rather than just saying this is an infantry. It's going to matter a lot more like what kind of infantry are you using and things like that. Um, they did release like another just standard Axis and allies game. I think a couple of years ago after they did their anniversary edition, but it, the reviews I saw for it weren't great. Um, they removed a couple of things from the game. Apparently there aren't enough pieces for some reason. And just the overall build quality of it was not great. And since then they haven't done just a full Axis and Allies. It's always been Europe or one of the other spin-off campaigns. You hear that Avalon Hill? Just make us regular old Axis and Allies again. Because the anniversary edition is too expensive. Yep. And then uh, we get up to the modern era. So compared to like the old school war games, they're all a lot of those were fairly similar. They used similar hex encounter systems. And coming into the 2020s and I guess the 2000s, basically since the board game Renaissance started, you get a lot more experimenting with gameplay and more modern game mechanics, I guess, rather than just saying these are the toys uh, that they fought with during the war. Here's how they play out on the board. You get a lot more of the gamist abstraction and a, honestly a bigger variety of games than you would see back in the early 70s. Yeah, so Memoir 44, which I had mentioned in a previous podcast, I don't remember which one, uh, even though it's not for me, it's a good simplification of what the old hex encounter system used to be like. So you've got the hex encounters, you've got your units, um, but it, it simplifies it down and it also adds in um, card mechanics, which you don't see a lot in old games. Um, Undaunted Normandy, which is another one that I want to play, just haven't gotten around to it. It's a, primarily a deck builder, but it also has elements of like tile and worker placement, which, I mean, you definitely wouldn't have seen that back in the 70s. Uh, Bolt Action, which is a miniatures game produced by Warlord Games. 
it uses a really super simplified 40k style mechanics to do its its World War II stuff. And I really like that just as a a change, I guess, from the super detailed wargaming stuff that I usually do when it comes to World War II. And it can feel like just 40k with a World War II coat of paint on it, but it just, everything is so faster. Olive green? Yeah. Olive green instead of bright blue. Um, yeah, it just helps, it helps speed things up and it's, it almost feels like less of World War II specific mechanics than it is a World War II theme. And I guess when it comes to game design, that's something you could look at. It's like, you know, is this game themed or are we trying to actually simulate some aspect of this conflict in more detail? Um, and so I think that World War II theming is something that you see pop up more in modern games that are using non-simulationist game mechanics. Yeah. Yep. And then um, you even started to see it uh, break into the RPG, the non-rocket-propelled grenade type of RPG space. Um, War Stories from Firelock Games um, is one. Uh, there was another one that we were talking about earlier that I can't remember the name of. It was on Kickstarter, and I was not able to find it again. Um, but yeah, you're even... Sounds like it wasn't a successful Kickstarter then. Yeah, apparently not if I can't remember it. But yeah, you're even starting to see games that are RPGs branch into the World War II space, which we both seem to have issues with. I feel like historical RPGs are a little questionable. Um especially ones from that recent. Um, and honestly, I just prefer my RPGs to be fully fantasy or fully science fiction in general, fully fictional events, rather than trying to roleplay in something that actually happened and people actually died. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to roleplay a genocide and not have it come off weird. Because you know there's going to be one player in there who wants to be an SS officer that's inexplicably in with your uh, your group of freedom fighters. The veteran DMs out there, you know that's what would happen. <laughs> so, and to that player, we say, get the yep. hell out. So that kind of that's a pretty simplified history of what we have. For World War II games, um, but it does bring us to the idea of, you know, why do we play these games and sorry, my train of what's the value of yeah, what's the them? value and compared to other conflicts, why does this one seem to? I don't know if I want to say like spin off ish. But there's a lot of interesting fiction things that happen with 
World War II in general, and you also see it in World War II tabletop games. So when we're talking about uh, like war stories and World War II RPGs, there's another one called Akchun Cthulhu, which is weird World War II where the Nazis are, you know, trying to use various elder gods to help dominate the globe. And it's like, does that feel more or less weird to run as a game? Does it feel less weird because it's fictionalized? But alternate history is totally cool. And at that same time, though, is how how do we square like all the horrific things that happened with the games that we're playing? Because all of these games, all of them gloss over all the war crimes and all the really, really nasty stuff of world war two. And honestly, that's a circle that I have not been able to square because really nobody wants to play a game about the Holocaust because you're just going to be bummed out. Yeah, maybe you'll learn something, but nobody's going to be having a good time by the end of that game. And if someone is having a good time by the end of that game, they need to leave your friend yeah. and board game. Group. So I've been wondering if compared to other wars, if that's why we get a lot of fictionalization, a lot of mythologization of the Second World War compared to, like, the First World War, the Civil War, the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, I've only seen one weird Napoleonic War game. Um, I don't think I've... Which is a shame, because I feel like that there's a lot of uh, stuff you could do with the Napoleonic War that would be cool. I would also point out that one of the big differences is just media coverage again, that you don't see a lot of stuff, you, you don't see a lot of TV shows or movies or books even set during the actual Napoleonic War. So no one, so people just generally aren't as familiar with it as they are with World War II. So when you make a Napoleonic War thing, people are less like, are, are, don't know what it is and are less likely to be interested and don't know the details about it. Whereas if you make a World War II thing, everyone's like, yeah, let's go shoot some Nazis. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's a, a pretty good point because World War II, you know, it was a big media event. It involved almost every nation on Earth in some capacity or another. Unless you were like some uncontacted tribe somewhere in the Amazon, you probably had an idea of what was going on in the war. You had, you know, movies, you had radio, you had mass media newspapers and all that, so everybody knew about it, even more so probably than the First World War. Um, so yeah, just that, I guess that ubiquity in culture leads it to being built upon, I guess. Yeah, um, and the fact that we have visual resources from it that we don't have from other wars. We had photography, which, you know, we had from the Civil War onwards, but, you know, we also had much wider spread film. Yeah. Um, so that we can see stuff in action. The photography was, you know, there was just a lot more of it because there were a lot more people involved and 
a lot more stuff going on than in World War One, where it was just where a large part of it was pretty static. Yeah, not many, not um, many film reel cameras uh, showing up in the trenches during World War One, unless it was for a very specific photo op of the king walking around shaking hands and generally doing nothing. Yeah, so we had a lot of media, so there's a lot of visual stuff available that's, you know, very easy to see and very, uh, you know, straightforward for people who, like, want to look at that sort of thing. And a very distinct, like, size, yeah. for the most part. Um, World War Two, you've and, definitely got good guys and bad guys compared to something like the First World War where there really are no good guys, there are no bad guys. It was just kind of a clusterfuck that everybody just stumbled into. In the Napoleonic yeah. Wars, where, you could maybe say that Napoleon was the bad guy, but then again, it's just a bunch of inbred monarchs beefing over turf. Yeah, Napoleon's the bad guy, sort of? I mean, he... Yeah, let's not get into a full history of the Napoleonic Wars. But oh, please, he's let's He's the do. bad guy if you're a monarchist. <laughs> if you're not a monarchist, he's kind of okay? Uh, right up until the point where he declares himself I was going to say, if you're a monarchist, but he was an emperor after all. Yeah, but he did not start as one. It It's fucking complicated. Again... That's why we're not getting into Napoleonic Wars history, because it's fucking complicated. If I if I actually had um, some Napoleonic War games to play and some history-minded people who would want to play, I would definitely be down for doing an episode about it, but uh, that is not an experience I have had yet. Yeah, I'd be willing to try some, but I don't want to have to paint Napoleonic models. I think probably... That seems incredibly I boring. think Turnip 28 is probably going to be our best... Uh, best bet for napoleonic war gaming that's more it's it's weird napoleonic war that's it's weird napoleonic war and it's more um like late napoleonic war early world war one got it based on having watched some of the games and read some of the stuff about it like the you, you don't have machine guns but you have like rifle units and musket units and stuff <laughs> machine musket yeah it it's very much a like pre-world war one kind of thing and plus it has magic and shit so magic turnips don't yes and turnips uh what they should make is a turnip 44 that's like <laughs> world war two level bizarreness with that added on because that would be even crazy. I'd play that. Yeah, so would I. Um. So yeah, I'm, I always find myself kind of conflicted when it comes to fictionalized accounts of World War II. The amateur historian in me is like, are we doing a disservice and are we letting ourselves get swept up in mythology rather than doing an effort to promote the actual history of what happened. But then also the nerd in me is like, yeah, what if uh, the British had basically mechanical Turk style infantry for World War II and the Soviets had gigantic werebears? That sounds cool. 
Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, again, alternate history or fantasized history is gr is something I very much enjoy, and I feel like that doesn't add a disservice because you are telling a story with like loose trappings of World War II rather than telling a World War II <clears throat> story. And that's why I find alternate history and fantasy history games to be all like good, and mm -hmm. I like them. Whereas uh, straight up history specific games. I I have qualms about because it's it's history. This is a real thing that happened. Why replaying it doesn't seem to be telling a new story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's fair enough. And <clears throat> excuse me, um, like historical games have a a very specific audience for someone like me or for the the old guys that I play Advanced Squad Leader with. You know we have a very specific interest in, you know, what happened, where it happened, how it happened. And the games are interesting, interesting ways to kind of like go back and look at what happened and maybe kind of tweak it a little bit. Even if the game does kind of play out the way that the scenario actually happened in a way, it's kind of like, it's kind of like re replaying or reseeing the action again. I don't know. I could probably do an entire episode on historical wargaming on its own. And we should do an episode on historical wargaming. Yeah, war we gaming. probably should. And also, just like the idea of, I don't know, tragedy, bad things in history, and how do we tell those stories, or how do we reconcile with those stories through board games since there are people who have tried to use the medium of board games to talk about things like the Holocaust or slavery, which you can debate whether it's right or wrong to exclude or include those in, you know, your war game. I don't have an answer for that, but it, it feels like at least in the case of world war two, like a massive thing that, you know, it's the elephant in the room that everybody is avoiding. Um, yeah. I guess with any war game, you could have that with, you know, World War One. you have stuff like the Armenian Genocide, uh, just the general carnage that was the First World War, um, the turn-up winter where everybody starved because there was no food. But it's, I don't know. It's a thing that I haven't apparently formed my entire thoughts on and I'm still conflicted about. But both as an anti-fascist and an amateur historian, I think it's something that should be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if anyone wants to make a game that specifically addresses these things, uh, send us a beta copy and we'll play it and tell you whether we feel like it actually addresses these things. Yep. It's a... I feel like it's maybe it also could be a topic for more as board games begin to mature as an art form. Because I feel like we're still, even though we've gone through the board game renaissance, we're still kind of in like the early stages. I feel like there's more that we could do with what we do with board games. After the board game renaissance comes the board game Baroque period. Yep. And then eventually we'll get the industri the board game industrial revolution. And you'll in the box will just come with small children that just continually reproduce the game for you. 
Well, I think they tell you what the rules of the game are. They explain that. Ah, for you. that works. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's pretty much my spiel on World War II games. I kind of wish I had a little bit more to expand upon, but it's such a gigantic topic that unless I was to pick one specific game like I did with Advanced Squad Leader, um, maybe after playing some more uh, Axis and Allies, could do an episode on that. But it's just such a huge topic that doing an overview was the best thesis that I could think to come up with because it's it is a huge genre of war games. Like I said, I'll probably never, never even scratch the surface of playing them all. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's so, as we've mentioned, I think with campaign North Africa, yep. some of these games are as detailed as fighting a war almost and might take longer than the actual war did. Yeah. In, in listening to some of the the designers for these games uh, talk specifically for, like, uh, Advanced Squad Leader, they definitely approach it with a history-first mentality. Even though they are game designers, they're concerned with making sure that they are getting the history more or less accurate, you know, gameplay and scenario shenanigans notwithstanding. Um but they put in a lot of time, a lot of research to make sure that they're actually presenting it in a, you know, a good faith attempt to show what the war actually was. So unfortunately, that does lead to situations like Campaign for North Africa, where um, it is nigh unplayable. Yeah. Someday I'll play. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have to say some of the early and like huge... Um, World War II games, the war games, things like Campaign for North Africa or other ones by Avalon Hill seem to me like they would be much better as computer games. Yeah, that was one thing that I considered including um, because, I mean, honestly, games like uh, War in the East, War in the West, um, Revolution, Revolution Under Siege, um, Panzer General, they really are just computerized board games. They use a lot of the same mechanics that you would find in a, a cardboard and paper war game. Um, uh, that honestly could be its own topic. Just computerized board games or war games specifically. But... Yeah, I, I agree with that. There are a lot of games like that that would be better as computer games, and I'm honestly kind of surprised that they haven't done more of that. Maybe it would just be too much of an undertaking, or they're like, eh, nobody cares about Campaign for North Africa, and nobody ever played it anyway. Um, but if they made you know a version and put it up on Steam, I'd be like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to play that. Yeah. And, I mean, there are plenty of other games that have gotten versions available to play on Steam. Um, things like Terraforming Mars has an asynchronous version that you can, you know, play online. Things like, uh, 
Star Realms has its whole app thing. Um, I think part of it is the difficulty in putting it together for something like Campaign North Africa because of how detailed yeah. and complicated it is and also how large the uh, target audience is, which is you. Yep. Pretty much you. Yeah, you would need you'd need to do a lot of work with the AI. Um, for example, War in the East and War in the West. They're incredibly detailed, like even down to um, when you select campaign scenarios, they've gone through and they've looked at like the, you know, historical details of all of these units rather than just have it be this is an infantry. It's like, nope, this was a specific unit of infantry and this was everything they had at this point in the war as the game is starting. And they go through and they simulate all the weather for all the weather forecasts and reports they can find for the dates on those specific days in the game. And it's a ridiculous undertaking. And when you publish that game, uh, it's like $80 on Steam. Yeah. (laughs) Which you have to be, you know, in full-blown dad gamer mode uh, like me to buy games like that. So you would run into a similar issue with a North... Yeah, that's uh, that that's definitely a thing. All right, so I think that's World War Two games. The games of World War Two. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, and today we're talking about Onitama from Arcane Wonders. Onitama is a two-player game. It takes about 15 minutes or so to play, in which you play uh, martial arts schools. Uh, Each player... It's played on a 5x5 grid. Each player has a master and four... uh, What? Students? Disciples? And essentially, you move kind of like chess-ish, but you use cards um, that show what your moves are. They're like martial arts moves. You can do the tiger style or dragon style or horse style that like allow you to move your uh, one of your pieces in a specific, into specific positions. And you have two of them each. Each player starts with two and there's one sort of on the side and as you use one you pass it over to the other player so that and then you get whichever one is on the side. So the moves you have are constantly shifting, but it's a perfect information system. Everything is face up. So you know what your opponent has and what their future moves could potentially be at all times. So it's a very, like, position-heavy game and a very, like, straightforward game in that you can see everything that's going on and you have to like outthink and outmaneuver your opponent to play it. Uh, In addition, you win either by taking out your opponent's master or by getting your master across the board to the center of their backline. Essentially, there's like a gate printed on the board uh, which the board is like a very nice like mouse mat kind of material. Um, so it can be rolled up and stored easily. And also so that the pieces uh, don't like slide around. They stick to it pretty good. Um, it, it's a very nice presentation. Very nice gameplay. Uh, only takes about 15 minutes and is one of the best like 
quick two-player games for board games. Um, I would say, like, if you want a two-player board game that's not just a card game of some sort, Onitama is probably one of your best choices. Uh, the biggest downside to me is the quality of the plastic, like, figures that represent the master and the students. They're just kind of <laughs> clunky. It would be much cooler if you had, like, wood or stone ones that you made yourself. Or if you just, like, st stole some pieces from a chess set. Um... Because they're just the quality of the plastic figures on it doesn't quite match up with the quality of the rest of the materials. Uh, there are a number of expansions, which I think for the most part just add like new movement cards. Um, oh, they add. It looks like they add new movement cards and new types of pawns. So, you know, it, it, it changes stuff a little. But, for the most part, um... Huzzah! The, the core game is... standalone and very simple and fun to play. So I recommend Onitama if you're looking for a two-player game that you can, you know, bust out and play in 20 minutes or so. And that's a podcast. As always, we're Knoll Country. Uh, you can find us wherever podcasts are available for download. You can also find us on Twitter, at Knoll Country. You can find us on Instagram, at Knoll Country. Ed? Uh, one, don't be a Nazi. That's, yes, that's an that's easy one. step one. And if you're not a Nazi, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Animadness. I posted some more of my Game of Thrones stuff on there, and... We'll probably have more Game of Thrones stuff to come. Uh, you can go and support uh, True Colors United to make sure that all the queer kids out there have homes to go to. Donate to whatever your local reproductive justice uh, group is. Support the Ukrainians. And uh, go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>